Well, a very good morning to you all. It's good to be with you. Um, <clears throat> we're going to be looking at uh, this little section in Acts chapter 11 about how God continues to grow his church. And that's what I've put the title on your notes this morning. Uh, let me just pray before we come to this. Let's just seek God. Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that we have a message this morning. Father, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you, Lord, you've not left us in darkness. You've given us your word. And so we pray to God this morning that as we come to your word, that you would teach us. And Lord, as we look at how you grew your church at Antioch, Lord, we ask that you would grow your church here. And we ask, Lord, that even as we look at your word this morning, you would grow us this morning, that you would grow your work here, even this morning. Do your work, Lord. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. We ask for your help because we're conscious, Lord, that we need your spirit to teach us. Lord, there is a sense in which we cannot teach ourselves. We need your spirit to make your word real to us. So in Jesus' name and for your glory, we ask you to come and help us. Lord, presence us with your spirit, we ask. In Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> God is growing his church in the book of Acts. It's quite an exciting journey. If you were there and... Uh, in Acts chapter 11, in this little section, we see the church beginning uh, to spread out. Last week, Ben took us through the story of Peter with Cornelius, and that was a major a step forward in the proclamation of God's gospel and the church being extended beyond Jerusalem. It was a, a sort of watershed moment. And today we see the gospel going out farther not just to um, an Italian soldier, but now going to a Syrian city and um, with uh, all sorts of people there, not just Syrians, but Greeks as well. Now, I should just say before we start that this story is not chronological to last week. In other words, it doesn't follow on historically. There's, um, in fact, our first verse in our reading uh, gives us this. Look, those who had been scattered, verse 19, by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch. This actually goes back to Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And if you just turn your Bibles back there, this is the day that Stephen was killed. It says a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. The, the believers moved out, started to move out that day that Stephen was martyred and this is the continuation of that little story. So um, these people here... Um, 
didn't know about the situation with Peter because in fact at the, in verse 19 this hasn't actually happened. Now, I've, this isn't meant to be a history lesson but you've got a little bit of geography here. Um, just so, um, there's Jerusalem. Last week Peter was at Joppa and Cornelius was at Caesarea. And that was the journey last week that Peter made. This week, the people go to Phoenicia. Phoenicia is the region around Tyre and Sidon. That's the Phoenician area all around there. Then we read they go to Cyprus. And then they go to Antioch. So that's Antioch. That's Jerusalem. Uh, to put it in perspective, that's about 300 miles. That's from here to the Scottish border, say, Berwick-on-Tweed. They didn't have motorways. The best vehicle they had was a donkey. They might have had a boat as well. Depends how they went to Antioch. Uh, incidentally, there were about 16 Antiochs around at this time so it's very hard to get these mixed up this was Antioch in Syria and Antioch was a big place half a million people it was the third largest city in the Roman Empire after um, Rome and Alexandria and it was called Antioch the golden queen of the east it was a very impressive place the main street was four miles long. It was paved in marble. And down the street they had marble colonnades. This was a pretty impressive place. Lots of wealthy people lived there, people retired there. It was near a port, so it was on a, a key uh, shipping route in a, a sense. It was a big, big centre. So, uh, very wealthy, very cultural. It, it compared in a sense with Corinth and it compared with Corinth as well in terms of its sin um, near Antioch um, less than five miles away was the temple of Daphne the temple of Daphne and that goddess Daphne um, was infamous for temple prostitution it was a most immoral place so it was a very good place for the gospel to go to. It was ripe to receive the gospel. I'm not a botanist. I do like some plants. I've got one or two plants at the moment. But you know, for plants to grow, they need five things. And you know what those things are. They need heat. They need light, they need air, they need water, they need nutrients. And when you get all those things together, there's a sort of magic little process goes on called photosynthesis or something like that that helps the plant grow. I was in the greenhouse yesterday and I'm really impressed with some of these plants. And I stood there and I almost wanted to watch them grow. 
And I thought, you silly fool, you can't see this, it takes a bit longer. I want to suggest to you there are five things in this little section this morning that God uses to grow his church. These things are not exclusive things. These are just five things that God happens to use which happen to be in this section. And we have a spiritual photosynthesis going on, if you like. Because as the gospel goes to Antioch, God blesses it big time, and twice we're told, great numbers of people turn to the Lord. Because God is doing that secret work. Just like in the plant world, you can't see the, the growth, you see the effect of it, you can't see what's going on in the plant to make it grow. It's the same with the Spirit of God. You can't see God working, but God does work. And he did grow his church in Antioch. And he's still growing his church. And he's growing his church here. And so hopefully we will learn a little something that God uses here. And the first thing I've said is that God grows his church through suffering. By that I mean his people suffering that you get in verse 19. And verse 19 is really important and yet it seems to me we can glibly pass over verse 19. You can read it, you can say the words in your head. How quickly can you say them? Those who have been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch. Sounds great, doesn't it? Easy peasy. Except, it wasn't. Verse 19 is a very, very big deal. When that persecution broke out, these Christians ran for their lives. We've got some friends that some of you know. They were in Kenya just a few years ago. Serving God. He was a pastor of a church. And overnight, not just overnight, when something kicked off, instantly they dropped everything and ran for their lives. They had five kids. They brought them all back here. And guess what? They've now got six kids and they've gone back to Africa to Burkina Faso. And guess what? They've just run again. They've had to move with six kids, with a seventh on the way. Again, they've run for their lives. They've gone to the capital. We think they're coming back to the UK, folks. So those of you that know David and Liz will know them. We might even see them here. They can tell you their story. You think it's a big deal to drop everything and run? These people left Jerusalem. Can you imagine? They walk away from the job. Walk away from their friends. Walk away from their home. They perhaps had a very nice home. Perhaps they didn't. And I asked myself, Richard, what would you do? Richard, you've got a very nice home. I've got a very nice garden. I've got a very nice greenhouse, thank you very much. You can come and see it if you want. 
God says to me, Richard, would you just leave that for the sake of the gospel? And perhaps we will have to leave it. Things are changing in this country. This was a big deal. And these people went, and they went 300 miles without a motorway and without four rubber wheels under them. Hebrews 10.34 tells us this about some of the early Christians. It says, you joyfully accepted, joyfully accepted, the plundering of your property. The early Christians were robbed. And they said, okay, and they rejoiced. And why? Because they knew that they had a better possession and an abiding one. Folks, this isn't it. The best is yet to come if you're a Christian. There's glory to come. Jesus said, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Isn't that a fantastic promise? What was it that Jim Elliot said? Um, he's no fool who gives up what he can't keep to gain what he cannot lose. And these people willingly gave up what they had. And I challenge myself, am I willing to do that? We don't know. But I want to say this. These disciples suffered, and they suffered so that God could be glorified in a much bigger way a much bigger way than if they had just stayed where they were. They didn't understand it. They didn't know it. They didn't get it. They just went. But God had a plan and God had a purpose. And that hardship that they went through, God turned into a wonderful opportunity in Antioch for the gospel. And I just want to leave you with a little application about this. We're not in their situation. I'm not making out that's the case. That could happen, but that's not our case. But I tell you what, all of you, if you're a Christian, you do have problems, don't you? But if you haven't got them today, you're going to get them tomorrow. Right? That's life. There will be hardships. There will be struggles. There will be things that don't work out quite as you planned. How do you feel when your plans get crossed? <laughs> I took my grandson flying the kite. Last week we had a great time. Yeah, I had a great time as well. But at one point we got in a tangle. And in fact we got a 30 foot tail on our kite. And even the tail got tangled. So, right, Zach, you can have a go with this. I'll take you out. And do you know how I felt when this got tangled? No, you don't want to know how I felt. Not good, folks. Not good. And I actually rebuked myself while I'm trying to sort this out. I actually preached to myself, you know, because there's a way to respond. What I want to suggest, folks, is this. That when things go pear-shaped... I want you to think differently. I want me to think differently. Is that an opportunity 
for the gospel somehow. When things go wrong, does that create a situation that takes you into a different situation where you're meeting different people? So does it create an opportunity? That's what their hardship did. And I want to suggest that when you get things that don't work out quite like you planned, there may through that be an opportunity to share the gospel with somebody. So the boiler blows up. You didn't need that. No, but you've got the plumber there. Is that an opportunity? I got a puncher last week. I didn't need a puncher, did I? I ended up going to two garages. Was that an opportunity to speak to people? I didn't, but perhaps I could have done. See, when God changes your plans, perhaps that's an opportunity. That's what I'm suggesting. So I'm saying, think about it. Think about it. The second way that God grows his church here is through these people speaking. It says, they went as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. Only among the Jews. That word spreading is the word speaking. It's the same word that we have um, when the men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also. That's the word. It's speaking. And I understand these people only speaking to Jews initially. They were Jews. They'd come from Jerusalem. And they didn't know about Peter and Cornelius. And so it was natural to think, well, it's Jews only. But obviously these other Jews came that had a Greek background. And they then started talking to the Greeks as well, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus in verse 20. The point is, they began to speak. They opened that little round thing that you've got in the front of your head and moved that little pink thing in the middle. They started to talk to people. And you might think it's quite easy to open that little hole there and move that little pink thing. But sometimes that can be quite difficult for us to do that. They began to speak. This isn't rocket science, is it? And doing this could get them into trouble. It perhaps already done that for them in Jerusalem. And they're out to run. But that doesn't stop them talking. They are talking about the Lord Jesus. Folks, we need to talk to people. This is how God grows his church. Just by talking to people. You see, just like my little plants in the greenhouse, I put them in some good soil and you put some water on. And they just seem to grow all on their own. And the amazing thing is, when you tell people the gospel... God does things. Do you believe that? Or do you think it's a waste of time me talking to this person because they're not going to believe me? Folks, when we tell people the gospel, God works. God uses it. He's not using other things. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It was, it is, it always will be in this life. Just by telling people the gospel, 
God grows his church. Just look what happens when they start telling them the good news about Jesus in verse 21. The Lord's hand was with them. God is working. And a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. They were telling people about Jesus. What were they telling them? They were telling them that Jesus came into the world. The Lord Jesus came from heaven. He died on a cross. He rose again from the dead. He's ascended to heaven. He's coming again. He's the judge. Every knee is going to bow and give an account, but he's a saviour. And he rescues everyone who puts their trust in him. It's still the same. The Lord Jesus is still rescuing people. He's still a saviour. Isn't this great news? <laughs> people in Camborne need to hear this. They need to know that there is a way for people to be right with God. And it's simply through believing in the Lord Jesus. Paul writes to the Corinthians, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. It's so simple, isn't it? And the Lord's hand was with them. And there's an incredible result. So brothers and sisters, let me encourage you. Let's just speak. What was the little course we did a little while ago? Just start talking. Just talk about Jesus. You don't have to worry whether people are going to laugh at you or whether people are going to reject you or people are going to tell you to shut. That doesn't matter. Your hope isn't in how people respond. Your hope is in the Lord of the Word. And when we tell people, God will work. So let's tell people and let's let God do his work. But before we leave this, I want you to notice this. It says a great number of people, verse 21, a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. This is important. Do you know, it's not just enough to believe in Jesus, or even to believe in the Lord Jesus. Do you know Satan, the devil, believes in the Lord Jesus? The demons said when Jesus was here, we know who you are. They didn't have any doubts. They weren't atheists. They knew. But real belief, real faith in God, means something else as well. That when we really believe, we turn. And that's what these people did. They turned to the Lord. They became disciples. You know what a disciple is? A disciple is a follower. They were going their own way. Their life now gets turned round and they follow the Lord. Now perhaps there's someone here that's not a Christian this morning. Perhaps you're here because you're interested. You're wondering what this is all about. Perhaps you want to get right with God. Perhaps you need to know you get, need to get right with God. Well, it's very simple. Jesus says, trust me. 
Rely on me to deal with your sins. Believe that when I died on that cross, my blood was shed for your sins. He says, simply believe this. Trust in this. And then he says, come and follow me. And you say, well, how do you believe? What do you have to do? Well, you don't have to do anything apart from believe. That means you can become a Christian right where you are. You haven't got to come out the front. You haven't got to go anywhere. You haven't got to say any magic words. Right where you are in your seat, you can trust the Lord because you do it in your heart. And you walk out of here thinking, I'm going to follow the Lord from now on. That's what these people did. And great numbers of them turned to the Lord. And if we do that, that should be clear. I put a little quote in your notes that I came across. This I found very challenging. From Dr. David Otis Fuller. He said, if you were arrested as a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Does your life demonstrate, are there witnesses that can say, that person is a Christian, definitely, because he does this, or I've seen him there, and I've, whatever. Would there be witnesses that could come and say, yeah? It's challenging, isn't it? Does your life show? Does your speech show? Because when you speak, it shows you're not ashamed of the gospel, and you're not ashamed of the Lord Jesus. So God grows his church. He allows his people hardship and suffering. So the gospel gets to another place. And then he grows his church just by people talking. Just by telling people. But then God does something else. He grows his church through encouragement. And the news of what was going on here at Antioch got back to Jerusalem. They said we've got to send them some help. And off goes Barnabas. I guess all the apostles were in different places, like Peter's probably at Caesarea at this time, and so they send Barnabas. And uh, the Barnabas means son of encouragement. Uh, Barnabas wasn't his real name, by the way. You both go back to Acts 4. Barnabas' name was Joseph. They called him Barnabas because he was good at encouraging people. Notice what Barnabas saw. He saw the evidence. <laughs> there was evidence here to convict people that these people were Christians. He saw what the grace of God had done. He saw changed lives. He saw people that were living differently. He saw people that were following the Lord Jesus. And he saw the grace of God at work and he encouraged them because, firstly, he rejoiced with them. How do you feel when God blesses other people? How do you feel when God blesses other Christians and you feel you're missing out? How do pastors feel when they see God's blessing other churches and he doesn't seem to be blessing his church? Barnabas was glad. <laughs> you know, there's no place for envy. Whatever God does, 
God does it. If God blesses other churches, let's rejoice. Let's praise God. If God blesses other preachers, and I pray that God would raise up some big men in this country with a big voice, that there would be people that would be there to have a voice across the nation. Uh, an English Billy Graham, if you like. Someone who can stand against the tide and speak the gospel into a lost world. Let's react like Barnabas reacts. He was glad. This did his heart good. He wasn't filled with envy. He, he was just rejoiced that God was being glorified, that people were being blessed. And he encouraged them to remain true to the Lord. I think this is the real goal of encouragement, you know. We want people to go on. We want people to grow. My desire for every one of you is that you would not only know the Lord, but that you would grow, that you would go on. I talked to dear John about this the other week, about when we get to glory. I want to see John in glory. We were laughing about some things about heaven the other day together, reading the scriptures. But I want to get to glory with John. I want you all to get there. That's what Barnabas does. He's encouraging people to go on. Paul says to the Philippians, he says, I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. Paul says, that's where I want to go. What's your ambition? What is your ambition? And what is your ambition for this church? Surely your ambition should see people come to trust God, but go on and get to the end. And he wants them to trust the Lord, to go remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He wants them to be whole-hearted. And you see what sort of man Barnabas was. He was a good man. What does that mean? This is an honest man. This is a man who does good things. He's full of good deeds. He's there to help people. That's why he's actually there at Antioch. He's not on a holiday. He's not on a freebie. I don't know whether he got a donkey or whether he actually used his two legs. You walk 20 miles a day, you could get there in 15 days, couldn't you? It's only 300 miles. That's why Barnabas is there. He wants to encourage them. He's a good man. He's a spiritual man. He's full of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It means he's humble. That's why he can rejoice when he sees the church. He's got a servant heart. He's submissive to God. He wants to think spiritually. He wants to think like God thinks. He's a faithful man. He was full of the Holy Spirit and faith. He was trustworthy. He had integrity. He was reliable. 
This is the man that God uses. And you see what the response was. A great number of people, the end of verse 24, were brought to the Lord. This is the second time we've had a great number of people being brought to the Lord. This is a big church. God is growing his church. How? By his people just speaking. And by people encouraging and strengthening. Building people up. And if you want to be an encouragement, can I suggest you look at Barnabas and emulate him. But Barnabas, he feels, hang on, this is a bit too much for me. And uh, he decides to send for Saul. I didn't show you this bit on the map. Uh, Tarsus. There's Antioch. There's Tarsus. That's where Saul was, Paul was. Barnabas decides to go to look for Saul. And the word that is used for him to look means that it wasn't easy for Barnabas to find Paul. He didn't know where he was. He had to go and search for him. But Barnabas recognised he needed help. And so he sends for Paul. And he goes himself. And he found him. And he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. God grows his church through the teaching of his word. This is what Hebrews tells us. Because for these people to be taught by Paul and Barnabas, they would meet together. This is what Hebrews 10 tells us. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. These people were doing what Hebrews suggests. They were meeting together. You want to be taught God's word, you need to meet with God's people. This is where we teach God's word. This is where we go through the scriptures and deal with them and teach you what they say. But to benefit from this teaching, you have to meet. That's what they did. And and as they taught, God grew his church. How do we know that? Doesn't that exactly say that? Well, because teaching of God's word is the way that God uses to grow his church. Paul says to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, he says, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. You want to be built up? It's through this word. This is what God uses. And as the apostles taught this, as Paul taught this, and as Barnabas taught it, people were being built up. Peter says this, like newborn babies, and you all know about babies, don't you? Long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow. The way we grow is feeding on 
God's word. And Paul says, we proclaim Christ, teaching every man, so that we may present everyone complete in Christ. Paul's saying as we teach people, they grow. And if you're a person who doesn't read the Bible, or doesn't sit under God's teaching much, then I would encourage you to change that. We ignore God's word at our peril. We can't grow spiritually without God's word any more than my plants in the greenhouse can survive without water. The Bible's clear, Jesus is clear, Matthew 4. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And let me tell you this, and you know this, God has given you the clearest picture possible about the need to feed on his word regularly. How many of you have got kids? Come on, stick your hands up, don't be shy. Look, if your kids go off to school, Monday morning, okay, it's half term, but if they're going off to school, even if they're just getting up, uh uh-huh, and they're missing breakfast, what are you going to say? Do you give them packed lunches? Do they have school dinners? What if you give them a packed lunch and they come home and none of it's eaten? What are you going to say? What do you say when you sit down at tea time, you put dinner in front of them, they say, I'm not hungry, or they eat three peas and leave the rest? I know what you say. I can hear the words ringing in my ears. For the little ones, you say, look, if you don't eat your veggies, you're not going to grow big and strong. (laughs) You know it's essential for your kids to eat. And when people start, stop eating, you know what happens. My own father stopped eating. He's been gone a number of years now, but on his death certificate, one of the things was anorexia. When people stop eating, they die, folks. We need God's word. Barnabas knows this is so important, he goes all the way to Tarsus, which was how far? probably a hundred miles going round I don't know whether he went by what he did or it's a long trip on a boat but he makes the effort because he knows teaching these people God's word is so important and he needs help so let me encourage you to read God's word to sit under God's word in terms of teaching And one little thing before I leave this. They were first called Christians at Antioch. This was a nickname. This was um, mockery. This was humiliation. This was not very nice. But I want you just to notice this. They weren't called Jesusians. They were called Christians. Christians. Uh, the iron, the ian at the end, is a Latin suffix. Uh, it's Italian, um, but meant belonging to the party of. So calling people a Christian was belonging to the party of Christ. 
But it, it was a, a term of, um, not a very pleasant term, although Christians soon turned it into a badge of glory. Why do I cre- uh, press that Christian bit and not the Jesus bit? Because back in verse 20, they told them the good news about Jesus. No. It's not what they told them. They told them the good news about the Lord Jesus. Jesus is just the human name. It's the man. And his story is important. But it's more than that. Because this is God's man. Christian, the Christ is God's anointed king. It's God's man. And the Lord Jesus is the man that died but has been exalted and given a name that's above every name. The New Testament writers rarely use the name Jesus on its own. Um, I've actually got a spreadsheet with all the names on. It's less than 5% of times that the writers ever use the word Jesus on its own. It's either the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, or it's Christ or Christ Jesus. It's always got one of the divine names attached to it. Because the Jesus we preach is Jesus Christ as Lord. They were called Christians. They were identified with God's anointed king. The last little thing, I'll finish with this briefly. God grows his church through their giving. And again you will say, well that isn't in the text, Richard. That's just a convenient way of making this whole section tie up. Actually, giving is an important thing that God uses to grow his church. Uh, Jesus said this, let your light shine before men in such a way they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Giving is one of those ways in which we glorify God. And as we glorify God, God uses that witness. As we give to people, we are loving God's people. Jesus said this, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And their love was shown by their giving. In other words, their giving was a witness, in a sense. And um, I put a long section in there from 2 Corinthians 9. Um, But uh, it talks about abounding in every good work. And God loving a cheerful giver. But then it ends up with those words about increasing the harvest of your righteousness. In other words, as we give to God's work, that produces growth for us in some spiritual way. It's still a spiritual work. What I'm saying is there's blessing in giving. There's blessing in giving. And giving is, in a sense, a means of growing. And we're told at the end there, they gave according to their ability. As a a wonderful chapter in Corinthians 2 Corinthians 8 speaks there about Christians giving beyond their ability and how God blessed that. But these people decided to help. They wanted to give. They knew there was a problem. Other Christians were going to go through hardship. And so they wanted to help. And uh, so they did that. And as we give to God's work, 
God's work flourishes. We have started here. God's work is growing here. Do you know why? Because eight churches gave to get us started. Eight churches gave money, significant amounts of money, to get us started. Without their help, the work couldn't be growing here. God uses our giving to grow his work and to grow his church. Don't ever think giving is in vain when you give to God. God is no man's debtor. God is a generous God, but he wants us to be generous. He wants us to give, and as we give, God grows his work. So let's use our circumstances for God's glory if we can. When the wheel falls off the wagon and the neighbour comes round, how are you going to react? Are you going to react badly? Or are you going to show that you're trusting God? And you're still going to rejoice in God? Are you going to do that? Let's speak the gospel. Let's tell people. Let's open that little hole and move that little pink thing inside. Let's encourage one another. Let's sit under God, God's word. Let's read it. And let's give to his work for God's glory and the growth of his kingdom. Amen. We can have a short break. Give you a couple of minutes just to talk on your tables. Then if you've got questions, we'll deal with those. And then we'll sing our last song. Interrupt your little discussions. Anyone have any comments or helpful comments or questions? for reminding us that um, our suffering is not in vain and that uh, God can use that as an opportunity to grow us as Christians in the church. I'm wondering, is there a distinction between regular suffering, say a very, very bad cold, or suffering for Jesus where I go out there to preach, uh, preach the word and I get persecuted for it? Well, I guess there is a difference. Um, all of us will suffer trouble in life at some point or another. It doesn't matter who we are, what we are. Man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upwards, says Job. And that is true. Right? And, and this life is, is just like that. Because we know this life ends with death. Right, and so that we all know there are difficult times. Um, obviously, what I was trying to do today is trying to suggest to you that you just use your difficult times as an opportunity 
to glorify God and serve God. Is that different to people suffering for preaching the gospel? I, I think it is. Um, and on different levels, I guess, Jimmy, because some people suffer for their faith to the point of being executed. Right? So people have given their lives for the sake of the gospel, and the apostle Paul did. And most of the apostles did. John was the only one that died a natural death. They were all executed for their faith. So there is a difference. And I don't say you go out looking for trouble. I don't believe we do that. But I think, even in this country, it's getting harder to preach the gospel. And I guess, in this country, we will see Christians, pastors, going to prison for preaching the gospel shortly. That's how it seems the tide is turning. Right? You, you can... It's a, we're a very tolerant society on the surface, but actually there's an intolerance towards Christianity. So I guess that, that would be different. Um, so I don't think we deliberately put ourselves in the firing line, but those people that are preaching the gospel, so some pastors are very wary about what they put online these days, because they know people can listen to that and it can be used as evidence. Some pastors are wary of that. We've got people preaching in the open air and we've had a preacher in Bristol last year was fined, was it 2,000 or 3,000 pounds for preaching the gospel? And, you know, these things are going to happen. Um, so that, that is different. Um, and I'm not saying we go looking for that. What I would say is just try and be faithful to your calling, what God's called you in. There are some people that are called to be pastors. There are some that are called to be preachers. So there are some people doing open-air preaching permanently. We need to pray for those people. Right? They, they've got to watch their P's and Q's. They've got to be faithful to the gospel, but without causing unnecessary offence. You know? So... I, yeah, that is quite different to the sort of stuff that's going to happen in our lives, you know? The everyday stuff. And in both things, I guess you need grace. You need to be able to trust God and walk with God in that and serve God as you can. Not sure that answers your question really, Jimmy. Um, just a thought from Hebrews chapter 12. And that might also help with that uh, question. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7. So Hebrews chapter 12 is talking about God disciplining his sons. And there's a line there that I've always um, thought that is helpful in understanding suffering is, ensure hard, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. So in that chapter, he's talking about discipline in general. But then he makes his statement, endure hardship as discipline so I don't know if that's an encouragement but it's yeah. maybe a way of helping us think that if we go through hard times maybe God is teaching us something yeah 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 thank you Paul 
Any other comments? Um, uh, yeah, thanks, Richard. Just uh, John and I were just saying we very quickly. Uh, we were just struck by verse uh, what is it, 23, so that uh, so Barnabas comes as, and remains, so that they've turned to the Lord Jesus, and then he encourages them to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. So, uh, and that's a really uh, that's a really interesting way to put it. I, I think that's worth thinking about what what it means to remain true to the Lord with all our hearts. But I guess the thing that John and I were talking about was that we never move beyond Jesus. So they turn to Jesus and then they remain true to Jesus. And actually there's nothing, you know, that, there's, that, that, that is what should define us. And I, I, I'm guessing that, that, you know, the implication is Jesus is so, so big, so amazing that we, we, we just never get bored of him and never get, mm. uh, you know, we're always excited about him. Mm. Um, and when, it, you know, it's not that we move on and, and explore all kinds of other ideas. It is, no, it's just, we, we're just remaining true to Jesus, mm. um, which is really interesting. Yeah, um, yeah. thank you, Ben. That's a helpful comment. Okay, so shall we sing our last song? And uh, this song is a prayer, a prayer for the Christian to pray as we sing, um, speak to me that I may speak, and uh, lead me that I may lead, teach me that I may teach. Um, yeah. So let's uh, sing this song together.